Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the 1020 podcast. I'm very excited that today I can welcome Mark Nelson on the show. We're going to have a long and detailed conversation about the nuclear exit of Germany, the use of coal or the misuse of coal, and the future of European and Western energy production. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ralph. Good to be here. Uh, if you would, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background, kind of what ignited your passion for matters, energy and, and for nuclear and kind of what was your path towards where you stand at uh, this moment in your career? Sure. So I'm from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, uh, a large flat city on the prairies, central southern prairies of the United States. It's a place with no nuclear plants. So that's not where this comes from for me. My uh, family was in oil and gas, as many families are in that part of the world. And that made energy very boring to me because I was bored of being in Oklahoma City. Uh, I know doesn't make much sense, but that's that's being a kid for you. Anyway, I went to university for languages and also for engineering, and I had many interests. Wanted to see everything in the world. Traveled and lived a lot in uh, Russia, for example, studying the language, and just was lost in when it came to what on earth I was going to do with all of this travel and learning. Well, an, uh, a wonderful man who had run one of the great oil companies in the world had retired and decided to give a ridiculous scholarship to send these Oklahoma kids from the prairie to graduate school at Cambridge as long as we could pick a subject that was related to engineering. So I got that scholarship right as the UK decided to plunge back into building nuclear plants. So Cambridge actually had a nuclear engineering program being set up right there, and I was in the second class of students. It was an incredible time to be getting into nuclear because um, nuclear plants in Japan were just melting and the natural gas boom was exploding across the US, driving nuclear plants into bankruptcy. Perfect timing, perfect timing, right? So after grad school, I knew I wanted to stay in nuclear, came back to the US, struggled to find a job at nuclear plants themselves, but arrived just as folks out in California, the birthplace of the anti-nuclear movement, were turning around and deciding to make the birthplace of the pro-nuclear movement. So I got hired at environmental nonprofits that needed an engineering outlook on what's happening in nuclear. And I did a lot of work on electricity, on interaction of various energy sources, on nuclear itself, on um, various other environmental issues that affect energy. So for example, land use and forestry, stuff like that, and helped do a lot of writing and thinking for the groups that I worked with on what's coming next. How do we save nuclear plants from early closure? And how do we convince the world that uh, the, ru the ruby red slippers they thought would save them or that they didn't know would save them were on their feet the whole time and they could fly off to the energy promised land if only they knew. So sometimes energy, for a long time, I feel like for most people, at least in developed countries, the assumption was you have your gimmicks, you plug them in, and for example, electricity just comes out of the socket. And if it's cold, you turn on the heat and, you know, the apartment, the house gets heated. Not many people really thought about what energy really meant. Like they worried about the bills. Of course, everybody wanted to pay as little as possible. But it was only during last year with the beginning of the war in Ukraine and when for the first time the idea of a genuine energy crisis, not just 
price-wise, but really also supply-wise, could materialize, particularly in Europe, that people got more and more sensitive to this topic. Now, if you would go a little bit into this, I mean, what makes, in, in a sense, the modern energy system, particularly the modern electricity system, you know, grids, kind of getting energy from A to B, because very often the debate is, what do you produce electricity, for example, let's say offshore? Okay, that's one thing, but you need to get it where you need it. So maybe you can, from an engineering viewpoint also, kind of for people who don't have that background, explain a little bit, even if one would be super open for all kinds of energy production, but also if you would take all kinds of possible obstacles into account, what are some of the things that you feel are very often overlooked in the debate or, or maybe deliberately neglected, but that at some point will become real if you try to build things? Well, Ralph, that's a beast of a question on a beast of a topic. So let's try to break that up into smaller chunks. Let's talk about the, the electricity grid first. So first of all, electricity is extremely weird and complicated. Almost none of the experts that talk or think about electricity have a proper fundamental understanding of what they're talking about. Almost all the people involved professionally in policy about electricity have almost no clue what they're talking about. And in fact, we've now added layers of administrative complexity onto electricity around the world for various policy reasons or for um, niche economic interest reasons that electricity is so complicated that the people who run it, who work on it, who make money off of it, are often confused by it. So what is electricity? Electricity, when we use the phrase and we mean the stuff that comes in our house, is a giant, tightly interlocked machine running an electromagnetic field with very precise qualities controlled and maintained to deliver energy from facilities that supply energy to people and factories and businesses that need energy. This electromagnetic field exists over all the lines and wires in one grid system. And each part of that is tightly coupled to each other part physically while the grid is running and operating well. What this means is if you lose one power plant in one country in Europe and sufficient caution isn't taken, bad ripple effects can exist across the continent from that one start. Now, uh, 120 years, 130 years of operational experience is at play in stopping disturbances to, say, a factory that provides energy to maintain this electromagnetic field we call electricity from impacting users and other factories that make electromagnetic fields possible. So these factories, let's call them power plants. Power plants, especially large traditional power plants, use energy of some kind to run large rotating machines. These rotating machines are actually spinning magnets in between coils of conducting wires. And when you spin or move a magnetic field in the presence of electrical conductors, you set up an electromagnetic field and you can do work. You can, you can do work across anything connected to that electromagnetic field. So I'm going to stop there for a second and say, do you see what I mean when I say, uh, Electricity is complicated. 
We've only yes. barely scratched the surface. And in my experience, most electricity experts that I've met would struggle to give you any of the physical explanation. They would want to skip straight to their little thing that they consult on, or they'd want to skip straight to their policy goal that they want done, regardless of whether it works or makes sense or not. In fact, what I find sometimes is that I'll meet an electricity expert who for the first time is learning why it's bad that we're losing those large spinning chunks of metal that are spinning magnets inside the wires. And that means they have to start learning complicated things that they didn't realize before, like um, virtual power or, or uh, reactive power, which is a way of measuring work that you don't charge the consumer of energy for, but it's work that it's, it's energy that must be put into your system to maintain the strength and consistency of the electromagnetic field itself. And that used to just be provided by virtue of giant chunks of metal at power plants spinning at high rates of speed in the system. Another word for this is system inertia, but we're already getting many layers deep on the technical parts and there's much to go. I don't claim to be an expert on the specific electrical engineering topics. Heck, I tried to avoid it as much as possible. I was a mechanical engineer and then uh, aerospace and nuclear engineer. And I, electricity is weird. It creeps me out, Ralph. It's one of the reasons I think I'm conservative about sweeping changes people make. I know that you're probably known as a bit of a conservative. You probably know, what is it? Uh, Chesterton's gate. Do you know this concept? Uh, uh, please tell us more about it. Okay, so the, the great British conservative writer, G.K. Chesterton, uh, has this uh, device, this way of this, uh, what would I call it? Way of thinking named after him of the, of the gate where he says, if a man comes to me, shows me a gate in the woods and demands that it must be taken down, and I ask him, why was it put there and by whom? And he can't answer me. I will stand in front of that gate and say, do not deconstruct it until you can tell me why this was put up, even though I don't know either. Now, this, In other words, it's a sort of conservative principle. And I feel that anecdote coming to me frequently when I meet people who don't understand the physical basis of electricity or the historical basis of how we got to where we are now. And yet they claim to tell me that we need to do away with the past and bring in the new. I mean, would it be fair to say, and I think you touched on this a little bit now from the technical side, but but in Europe, the electrical grid in Europe connects about, uh, I think if I got it, I got it right, almost like 520 million people because uh, Turkey is also part of it. And I, I know one commentator once called it, it's one of the closest things in a technical sense we have of uh, a miracle in, in a way, the, the, the way it functions, what it connects. And this is one of the reasons what you just said, why one might be very careful to tamper with it. Well, let me give you an example. Let's actually push on this a little bit. In recent years, a phenomenon was observed whereby clocks hooked up to the grid frequency in Europe kept running a little bit slow, not an extreme amount slow, just a little bit slow. Clocks that used the frequency the, of the up and down electromagnetic uh, field to gauge the, the time. And it was found that a border dispute between, I think it was Kosovo and Serbia scrapping over some issue where they weren't agreeing on some procedure for operating a, a shared facility was, I think it was a dam, was leading to a slight and persistent frequency deviance 
that was causing clocks to run just a little bit off, among several other issues. And so that was across the entire interconnected European grid from just dumb border bullshit for two countries that have a very problematic history. Um, anyway, so that's the European grid for you. One of the biggest blackouts in the history of the developed world, of the rich world, occurred in 2003, I believe, in, in North America, across both Canada and the USA. Uh, I think coming out of Ohio, when a tree fell on a line, that line was connected to a nuclear plant. The nuclear plant tripped offline, went, went off, stopped turning its big rotating things. And that led to a cascade that ended up affecting something like, I, I don't know, 50, 60 million people, may have been bigger than that. And, and across many states and two countries. That's the grid. It is indeed the closest thing we have, I think, to a miracle. And people who suggest wholesale changes, but do not themselves understand how the grid works, it scares me a little. Do you think, because this is, as you just said, I, I feel exactly the same way for myself. My, my background is I'm a political scientist, I'm a social scientist, so I have a zero engineering background. So correctly, some listeners and viewers might say, oh my God, why is Ralph even talking about these issues? But that's why I reached out to people like you, right? Those who actually have the knowledge uh, and are also willing to explain it to those who are newcomers to it. One of the things that kind of I started to understand or try to understand more and more how we look at, at just if we stick a little bit longer to electricity, it's, I mean, it's not really like a commodity, right? I cannot have, you had, did a fantastic show with Chris Kiefer on the Decoupled podcast, what the, the masterclass on coal. And, and you said, I think, about, about uh, a couple of very interesting things about coal when you say it's there when you need it, because all you need is, a, you know, you said a shuffle, a big room where you can store the coal, and there it is. But although you can use coal for electricity production, but electricity itself, that's more like a, a I try to, it might be a stupid comparison, but it's in a sense a little bit more like breathing, right? I cannot say, oh, I'm going to breathe twice as much on Monday, and then I'm not going to breathe at all on Tuesday, because most likely, depending on my, you know, lung capacity, but I think there's a high chance that I'm going to die. And let's even, still, let's make it, let's actually tie it to something that is very much a, a usable analogy in the body, the heart. Mm -hmm. Now, that one gets a little weird because the heart itself c communicates across cells with an electrical impulse. So you, you start to get you start to get a little closer. But um, yeah, the heart, you can't store up heartbeats and then have them later. And here's another thing. If your heart has ninety nine point nine nine percent reliability in a year, buy a tombstone. You're, yeah. And, and would, you, would you say, as you just said, I think that is in some sense a, a, a fair comparison uh, with with the electricity grid, because that, and of course, now we come, I'm sure with all our listeners and viewers are very excited about, now we come to the big elephant in the room, of course, which is the European energy situation, and particularly the completion of the nuclear exit by Germany. But, but can I, I go backwards a little sure. bit? Because oh, yes, I want please, to talk please. about the closest I've ever observed to a heart what? attack on the grid. In the winter ice storm, the great winter ice storm of 2021, in some ways, an event that helped make my Twitter reputation because I was one of the few people commenting who wasn't immediately just trying to make propaganda for one side or another out of what was occurring. To remind your viewers in Europe, what happened was a large storm with cold weather, not, not really record-breaking, and in some places where the records are set, didn't change much. It was about as severe a storm as had happened in previous years. But... This time, the grid had changed and the new Texas grid had not really gotten 
challenged like this before. So cold weather was coming and I had early warning that a crisis was coming because my father called me up and said that his wells were freezing. This was on a Saturday. So his, his natural gas wells with, with uh, pipelines, little bitty pipelines leading to the big pipelines, his wells were freezing and despite prices starting to rise already for natural gas, they couldn't sell and they hadn't booked enough of these guys with basically big flame torches to melt the melt the pipes to let you flow and you get your gas to market even if the other other guy doesn't. So on, that was on a Saturday. By Sunday evening, fairly desperate situation had started where across Texas, gas was being fail was failing to be delivered to power plants that ran on gas. Even worse, the winds just kind of stopped and Texas is one of the great wind powered states in the world. And the grid, we should talk about the grid here. In the United States, there are three grids. East, West, Texas. So uh, it, it practically writes itself as a joke, yeah? But it's just the way it is. Texas is its own little grid and electricity market and political environment. It's, it's all in one. So in Texas, the wind stopped. Sunday night was a nighttime, so the sun stopped. The gas lines were starting to freeze up, but the gas gas system had been chosen as the perfect companion for wind and solar because if you're not burning gas, you're not spending much money at a gas plant. So if the wind is high and the sun is high and the gas plant turns off, that's okay as long as you get enough money selling power when your gas plant turns back on. So gas plus renewables had long been marketed by environmentalists, by, by big policy groups as the answer. But this was the first time that gas plus renewables were the overwhelming bulk of capacity of available power generation facilities in Texas. Then the coal plants started to freeze up a little. Then one of the four reactors in Texas, nuclear reactors in Texas, there are four incredible reactors, dirt cheap power, fantastic performers, young plants, great condition. One of them had a sensor in an outside area because they don't, they, they have such warm weather in Texas. They hadn't, they hadn't built buildings around some of their equipment. A little sensor registered a slightly wrong reading, and it spit out a message saying, "Okay, shut down the power plant." So they they shut down one of the four reactors automatically, and that led to a situation where the grid operator kept needing to turn off power to various areas. Well, here's where the problem gets even worse. Some of the natural gas plants were being supplied with natural gas with pumping stations on the gas pipelines that themselves were part of electricity circuits that were being turned off. So it was like a body choking itself off to feed. You see what I mean? So, so like electricity to the pumps eating, it, off. It's eating itself. Uh, the a, system eating itself, right? Yeah. And as the weather was getting colder, people were attempting to turn up the, the temperatures warmer as they should, because this, their own houses would have been struggling to stay warm and they didn't want to break the water pipes and, and cause a bunch of damage. What happened? Texas then shed more and more load all the way down to the minimum level where there was no more load that the operators could cut. And they stared and they watched as the voltage, or not the voltage, but the, uh, yeah, I guess it was the, the frequency. That is the up and down movement of the field itself being produced by the turning of magnets within coils, this big physical electromagnetic field 
that exists on the thing we call the grid. As the frequency was degrading further and further and slower and slower and slower. And when I mean slower, I mean barely slower. Just like a few fractions, a few fractions of the frequency were going away. But the operators were staring and watching. If that frequency got any lower, it meant that the giant nuclear plant that was still keeping the grid going would no longer be able to stay online because it was dragging, physically dragging on the turbine and it could possibly blow up the turbine or destroy the equipment. And they would have had to shut off the nuclear plant, which as the largest power plant left operating on the grid, the grid operator sink would have plunged the whole state into a full blackout, a heart attack of the grid, full heart attack. And here's the thing that really scares me, Ralph. The revival process, there, there's, no, there's no shock treatment here. They would have had to turn the grid back on through never yet used uh, equipment and training and procedures, never yet used. And they think that the so-called cold start of the heart of the grid would have possibly taken up to a month of all of Texas in the winter not having electricity. So we can all imagine what that would have meant also as a, at a loss in, in human life. I mean, oh, shoot. Just uh, just losing a quarter of their power for four days led to something like, depending on who you ask, between 100 and 200 deaths and tens of billions of dollars. But that's what the grid with uh, without losing the whole grid. So I told that big, long story because I wanted to scare your listeners a lot. And no, know I that think we I'm got very close to losing the Texas grid within but I'm minutes. But I'm glad I'm glad you did because because this is this is energy of one of the things we barely recognize it as long as we have it, but it becomes a really important issue or potentially a lethal one if we don't have it. So as you said, we don't constantly walk around and you know grasp our chest and say, "Is my heart still beating? Is my heart still beating?" But we know if it doesn't, it's game over. And I think this, the same is true here as well. And so the question I'm asking you now, of course, that we have to, oh, I would like to go to this direction. Now, are we currently conducting our energy policies? And, and feel free to, you know, Europe, US, whatever your, your, your favorite uh, kind of example is, or maybe you want to touch on all of them. Are we performing in a way that we are strengthening, let's say, our heart? Or are we like, quote unquote, you know, the, the chain smoker who's, who's making it harder and harder or, you know, or the, you know who, who is barely hydrated, you know, the blood gets ever thicker, it makes it harder and harder for the heart to pump the thing. And as we always say, as long as nothing happens, it works. But what's the, what, do, what do you feel is the direction? I know there is you, then there's Meredith, there's Angwin. So there, there are many, I think, very insightful people who say the direction in which this is going is not imminent catastrophe, but the likelihood, the potential for something that you just described as it did happen in Texas, which could have been much worse, that this can happen elsewhere as well. So kind of do you share the pessimism or or do you think maybe that that you know maybe it's overwrought? No, I absolutely share the pessimism. And I'm not even saying there's going to be blackouts per se, just decreasing quality of service at increasing prices with only moderate gains for whatever ideological goals people are looking for, like the climate. So let me give you an example. In Germany, energy prices are catastrophically high. Now, people heard it on the news when wholesale prices were high. That's not what worries me so much because almost everybody was on electricity rates with delayed increases of prices. 
What I'm disturbed by is that they're moving in the wrong direction over long time periods into the future with less and less volume as far as I've heard it from people being sold further and further out because of the unpredictability, not even the high price, but the absolute unpredictability of what's going to happen into the future. Both the people selling electricity and the people buying electricity have almost no way to judge anymore whether the system will be in chaos or in crisis or find some new stability. And what that means is the industrial economic heart of European producers, of the big European economies, the ones that produce much of the value in Europe that then goes to other countries through trade and services and, and importing raw materials and stuff like that. Those heavy industries, those big industrial electricity consumers are needing to decide to go elsewhere in ways that are reducing the chance of blackout while increasing the chance of economic disaster. So I don't think it's a success in Germany that with only scaring off industrial production, they were able, and, and having a lucky winter and paying an immense cost, they were able to avoid blackouts. The point is that it's not about blackout avoiding, it's that cheap energy makes a rich world, a rich, clean world. And we're losing, we're losing the independence of each part of Europe to totally sustain the grid on its own if it needed to. Its own, at least its own grid, its own borders. I, I say its own grid. There's one waveform, one electromagnetic waveform from Portugal to, uh, up to, up to Finland. I mean, this is not, this is not a toy. This is not something to model in Excel. This is something of barbaric complexity that's the only thing standing between us and barbarism, I guess is the way I'd put it. And mm -hmm. Europe is moving in a direction where hundreds of millions of people will live under one big weather pattern, maybe one big heat dome or one big high pressure cold spell in the dark winter with everybody thinking that if their wind turbines go off, they can get power from neighbors. Would it be, Gerrit, that this almost leads me to something that I also wanted to ask you. This, I, I think there is precisely pertaining to what you just said. There is a certain, and I know this is a harsh word, so I try to formulate it very carefully, but there seems to be a certain dishonesty very often in this kind of debate. And I think you kind of touched upon this. For example, right, Denmark is always used as you know, one of the prime examples of a country producing most of its electricity uh, through wind turbines. But... Yes, it's true. The electricity produced by Denmark comes a lot comes from wind turbines or from wind. But the energy that or the electricity they produce is not enough for Denmark. So they import a lot of electricity. Well, well it's both not enough and too much at the same at, in different hours. Yeah. Sometimes within and a few hours, it goes from being way too much to way too little, which is fine as long as Denmark is just a little bitty barnacle. A little, little uh, carbuncle on the uh, European grid, and not the main such store. A, such an American, such an American thing to say. Hey, I work with a bunch of lovely Danes, and they would totally back me up on this. <laughs> But is, that's the thing, right? Because this brings us to the next point. Because your critics would say, "Well, what Mark says is correct, but what he underestimates is the speed in which replacement energies, replacement electricity production will come up. How new technologies will come up. That we are just." Days away, I'm exaggerating for a dramatic effect, but we're just days away from a new battery breakthrough. And then we will charge these batteries with wind and solar and, and all the, the potential risks that you just mentioned will just, just go away. I mean, what, how would well, you Well, first of all, let me say this and say that 
honest men and women can authentically disagree. I find that the more sophisticated, the technical and engineering knowledge with the, the person I'm disagreeing with, the less we disagree. So there's, if I'm going to be mean and aggressive, I'm going to be the person you know on Twitter, I'll say this. Genuinely honest and decent people can disagree. I almost never have deep disagreements with those with deep engineering knowledge. They may, they may work in other areas. They may not agree with me on everything on nuclear, but I rarely have serious disagreements. And I can always stay cordial with those with deep domain experience and knowledge. And I don't know if that's them being nicer or me being nicer, but there's a difference between that and the debates I typically have where people are learning about basic grid concepts for the first time in the middle of the debate. <laughs> and then I'm stuck trying to not patronize them, not patronize the audience, but I'm stuck having to say, if you don't understand the basic things that are underpinning the operation of this, of this machine, then what on earth am I doing trying to convince you of something where it's easiest if you know nothing? Let me expand on that easiest if you know nothing. I've been involved with some modeling efforts. And what I found is this, as long as you spend almost nothing to get a garbage model with almost no complexities and detail, you can quite easily show that we can decarbonize everything with uh, wind, water, solar. You start poking even the smallest holes in that and your model gets much more expensive to build, to run, to operate. Finally, you approach the metal, the actual metal of a spinning object or a, 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 you know, an inverter feeding solar power, park power into the grid. And the modeling that a company will do just for one dinky little solar park to make sure that that park will not disrupt the grid through sending out spurious symbols signals or that the solar park will not automatically turn off in, a, in an emergency just because some ripples come along uh, the voltage of the grid. The modeling for that, people spend as much or more on what they do to model an entire continent for a 50-year period when it actually counts for not killing people. So there's a disadvantage where the less you know about the grid, the less you understand and the fewer resources you have available, the more optimistic your modeling comes in uh, for how easy it'll be to shut off all the traditional power plants and replace it with wind, water, solar. With the most basic ones being ones that look at, say, hourly or 15-minute data across a continent and just say, assume that all power plants built anywhere can transmit all their power to anywhere and that we definitely can build any plants that the model says we ought to build somewhere. And then they just let it go and say, see, we add in this little patch of sun from Spain, this little bitty gust of wind from Poland, and then we kind of mix it around and it'll make it along the wires. And no, that is not how it physically works. And if you extended the intensity of modeling for that one hypothetical solar farm to the level of detail of all the power plants for decades in a giant grid with the, with the physical complexities of needing to have multiple ways around a broken wire or a broken power plant or a broken transmission part, then you start to get something with the physical complexity of the actual grid itself. It's the old, you probably know the map versus the territory problem, mm -hmm. where to make a map with sufficient, sufficiently high detail that you know the territory down to a close level, you get a map that's as big as the territory and takes almost as much resources to make as the territory even has in it, right? That's, this, we have that issue with the grid and grid modeling too. But this, what you just mentioned, I mean, this, this almost kind of leads to the next question. Um, 
as you just said, that when you talk to to you know engineers, experts in the field, those who who know the nitty gritty of the technical issues, there is barely any disagreement, or you find a lot lots of common ground. Why is it then that particularly in these areas, I would say politics and all kinds of politics try to intervene or or you know opine so much on? And what I mean by this is. I assume that you know surgeons will have different approaches how they do surgery depending on, on on what they're doing, but they will agree on some of the basics, right? You use a scalpel and not a butcher's knife, but no. And and I think the public would also say if politicians all of a sudden would go out there and try to explain to surgeons how to do surgery, people would say, you know, we think it's better to leave it. In this case, is one of the areas where we really would say leave it to the experts, leave it to know how the system works, so have the experience. Why is it in energy, which as we have just established, is so crucial? I mean, I think one can justifiably say it is the one sector of the economy that makes every other sector possible. Why has this become such a focus point for, for, for you know, interest groups, for politicians to, as you just described, to, to try to intervene or try, I would say, to push in many ways, that's of course my personal opinion, to, for destructive approaches? Uh, which might be driven by an ideological agenda. How do you have a theory? Of just you know, just if you want to opine on this, how does this happen? That that all of a sudden something that that works. I mean, the German example is the best one, right? You had originally, I think it was 19 nuclear power plants that operated without incident. Uh, now they have zero. And if, if we take a close look and ask why did that happen, I think apart from politics and ideology, I cannot really find an answer. I mean, and maybe I'm overlooking something, but it's very hard to grasp. Well, two things really quickly. One, I've just recorded another podcast with a with a very interesting journalist from the UK, Jonathan Ford. Um, his podcast is uh, a long time in finance. And we went over this question of what is going on in Germany, both in the past and the present to cause this. And we went over it in exhausting detail. So if you're able to provide your listeners with that podcast, it just came out today. And it's practically Lovely. a companion piece for this episode that's a, a little bit more hard engineering. Um, okay, so that's the first one. The second one, and I think it, it the answer to your question was contained in the asking of the question, which is, if you've got a system that almost everything depends on, then any great issue of the day will eventually come back to land right on top of it. So for example, uh, when we were most scared of nuclear war and invasion from Soviet Union or dominance by Americans playing, playing superpower in a Europe that didn't want either side to nuke it in, in defense of anything, right? Then, then in, that, in that line of thinking, you needed to stop doing whatever was uh, even remotely associated to the militarism or the or the nuclear in, uh, weapons or anything like that. That was a lot of the urge of Germans to get rid of nuclear plants, that they saw it as one of the flashpoints. And the, the outcome of a flashpoint popping off was all nuclear to them. As if they could just get rid of it, they could turn back to the clock and make peace in a, in a post-World War II Germany that had been divided by warring superpowers, right? So yeah, it, it, the politics of the time feared nuclear war and thus came back to attack nuclear energy. The politics of our time fear the man's effect on the environment through greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases come from the economy. The economy runs off the grid. So it, this great political fear, whatever makes that anxiety, that eco-anxiety, that Malthusianism, or just 
It's a, any big political issue is going to attract its fair share of sociopaths and parasites. It's just going to happen. It will always happen. It will never stop happening. Now, it's, the, it's the, in some ways the fault of the citizens or even the interested elites should be blamed for letting the wrong sorts of uh, folks take hold on the most serious and important economic issues. But as it is, if we just look at the field as it stands, if you're concerned about energy, that eventually comes back to the grid. I mean, let me ask you something. This is a provocative question, but I was wondering about this for a long time. Would it, hypothetically, let's assume, you know, the two of us take over Europe for, for a year or maybe, <laughs> maybe longer. I mean, that, that's, and that's not even the shocking part yet. Would it be possible if we would have the financial resources to do so? Um, would it be possible to create or to formulate a policy and plan it of energy slash electricity abundance? where you could make you know, electricity, uh, a, not a commodity, but a service that is as cheap and available as you know, a broadband internet, where you're gonna, you, you pay a monthly fee, whatever that fee might be, and, and your electricity supply is, is covered. Or, or do you think people would just use too much? Or would the grid Ralph, allow it? Ralph, you're basically describing Norway and to some extent Sweden before the electricity crisis. And the answer is you get really rich. <laughs> Um, so you're saying, could we, with financial resources? So let me let me just say, without going deep, deeply in it, that I will. I don't think I'm ever going to forgive Doomberg for coming right out and popularizing the concept of fine of money as a claim on future energy resources. Because with much less eloquence and much less sophistication, during my year of unemployment after leaving a PhD program, I at the end of a year of doing almost nothing but thinking and ranting to myself, I just about got there and then did nothing with the concept, did nothing with the idea. And then, and then those bastards came back after me and actually said it and shared it with the world. And now I'm just a ranting loony coming <laughs> after them. But I agree that money is debt and that debt is, is basically claims on future, not just energy, but also human time and attention and machine time and attention as animated by supplies of energy. Shall we? So there, I added more incomprehensibility to it. So now that makes me better in an academic sense. So can we use this money, this claims on people's time and attention to construct a system that makes so much energy available for sure into the future that more money is created that is the claims on future time and energy, especially according to the, uh, you can say the relative abundance of it in the future versus now, as well as we can guess looking forward. Yes, I think what you do is you acknowledge that once a nuclear plant is built, it's basically going to be there forever. There's no reason that the German nuclear plants needed to have ever turned off. I hear whining engineers that are like, don't say that, Mark. Don't say they're immortal. What if the what if the reactor pressure vessel needs to be replaced a little bit? Then you replace it or you anneal it or you do whatever it takes to make sure that the beating heart of the reactor, the beating heart of the plant, the beating heart of the grid, which is the beating heart of the economy, stays okay, which you can do. We have we have domes, not high strength reinforced Concrete domes, but concrete domes that have lasted 2,000 years in Europe. I'm sure we can figure it out, Ralph. And it's much less expensive than starting from scratch. So let's just assume, looking, since you're a guy who likes old things that last, you can appreciate that nuclear plants built in the 70s needn't turn off at least through the 2070s as far as we can tell now. 
And by the way, like in everything that we, all of this, Britain may have one of the stablest monarchies, but they've got the only nuclear plants that don't apply when I'm talking about longevity. They're the only fleet of nuclear plants on planet Earth with crumbly interiors that cannot be suitably replaced without destroying okay, the but, reactor. But everybody but else. Now, but now your critics would say, but what about the French? Right? Didn't, didn't the, the French nuclear fleet let us down last year? Like that if anything, the French probably faked out the Germans to get them to shut off their plants so they could take both the German workers who know how to run a nuclear plant properly and also um, just dominate Germany and Europe. Can I just, you know, I've been getting a lot of pushback that I've been too mean to Germany, and I disagree. I think I haven't been mean enough to Germany. So in some of our last few minutes, can I just be, can I just be mean to Germany for your listeners? We're, yes, please, go ahead. All right, so Ralph, imagine that you're German and you show up to a big EU meeting, yeah? And there used to be two nuclear weapons powers in the EU. Now it's down to one. And then you have the most mighty economy, but you just got rid of your best power plants as your heavy industry is looking elsewhere. Imagine being German and showing up to a major international climate summit and you don't have any nuclear plants left. It's like, just go to the pretzel hall. We're going to go, go, go to the beer hall. Let the adults discuss. And then you, uh, you can join us later after we've decided what we want to do. Oh, you have money. You have money. That's cute. Money. That's a claim on future energy s supplies that you don't have anymore. No, that's not your money. That's not your euros any more than it's your coal or your gas that's other people's money that you just haven't paid them yet for energy supplies that you're going to have to buy from them so germany you don't even have nuclear plants anymore you used to be the greatest nuclear technician country the best nuclear engineers and you built the most beautiful individual reactors and now you may just need to wait outside while we decide what we want to do with energy and and defense and then you can come in later when it's time to pay for it That's the way I would feel if I were confronting a, a, a German who just lost their nuclear fleet, the finest nuclear reactors in the world, and they just turned them off. That's not an adult decision. That's a child's decision. That's not knowing where, where strength comes from. That's not knowing where value comes from. And it's certainly throwing your own allies under the bus, which I can see. If you're French, there's an idea that other people making themselves weaker is as good as being strong. And considering the mismanagement of their nuclear fleet over the past decade, including under the current president who closed a nuclear plant that was in an outstanding condition on the border with Germany, just because it was co-owned with Germany and he, he had promised that he would destroy a nuclear plant if elected. I, come on, these are not, this is not serious folks, but no matter how much damage France does to the nuclear fleet, there's still a nuclear power and Germany isn't. It's really a shame. Now we're going to fight that. I think there's an immense upswelling of support in Germany for returning those plants to operation. The biggest struggle is the doomsayers who say, no, they're totally dead. Don't, don't bother us. We're just over here destroying our plants over the next two years. Don't, don't mention it. No, 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 no. Until they drill a hole into the heart of that plant, until they physically damage deep into the metal and those reactor pressure vessels that sit in the middle of the containment domes, then you can bring those things back. You could tear down the entire turbine hall, and as long as you haven't damaged that reactor vessel, you can build it back. Oh, come on. The Germans can't build a turbine hall? How are they expecting to do the energy venda? Of course they can build it back, Ralph. It's just a matter of getting the word out that the, until the reactor vessels are drilled, 
those plants can return to service and become the again the finest reactors in the world. But the, the, wouldn't you the, again the counter argument? Wouldn't it be? But Mark, don't you see that that I think you were recently in a discussion on Al Jazeera uh, where another gentleman said, but ninety five percent of of all investment in energy goes into renewables. No, 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 no. no. Well, I, he said that. Uh, the vast majority of new capacity, like the oh, sorry, yes, like I the solar yes. panels, the solar panels in Europe are going to be about eight to ten percent production on their schedule, mind you, compared to what the label on the panel says. So the panel may say ten kilowatts, but the over the course of the year, it will give you in your house if the solar panels on it an average over the course of the year of six to eight. Uh, uh, well, let's see, 60 to 80 watts out of, out of say, yeah, I should get my, I should get my math example, right? So of a 10 kilowatt system, which is a big panel for a big, rich German, uh, aristocratic home, right? A huge thing. If you're allowed to put them on listed homes, I'm not sure, but let's say you do then about just under 10% of that, which is what you'll average through the year is about, well, um, about one kilowatt, just under one kilowatt. So eight, 900 watts. That is, first of all, again, on the schedule of the, of the sun, not on your schedule. And furthermore, it means that of the 10 kilowatts that you might say you're proud of, only a tiny fraction is on at any given, on average, at any given time, which means that quoting the total number of panels installed or the total capacity of the panels and the wind turbines installed is a deeply dishonest way to describe the the volume of energy delivered to say nothing of the importance of the energy delivered so this capacity factor which you can get by say looking at the label on a panel called the nameplate capacity or the label on the generator of a nuclear plant the nameplate the metal plate with the inscribed maximum generation capacity written on that times the number of hours in a year, say 8,760 in a non-leap year, gives you a total maximum theoretical energy. Then if you take the actual energy produced in a given year and divide it by the maximum theoretical energy, you get a number that we call capacity factor. There's a few other complications in there. For example, there's the availability factor, which says that if not for, if not for limits of sun or limits of say, I don't know, fuel or being shut down by disturbances on the grid that aren't your fault, how much is your power plant available to have produced versus how much did it actually produce? So there's another number. And then there are other numbers that just break this down even further. In other words, apportioning out the blame for non-production. That's what those numbers do. And all of these things, nuclear is just the highest, the highest, the highest, the highest. So anyway... I mean, that's, that's, and this is, you, you mentioned this, and there was a, a lot of, of kind of feedback for those who support the closing down of the nuclear power plants was, as we just said, it's all going to be replaced at some point. Um, because it, it was, I think, 8% 30 years ago. Now it's like 30% of electricity production comes from renewables. So why shouldn't it be 100% in a, in a couple, in a couple of years? And I think you, you had a, a pretty good comeback to, to that, uh, that you, you compared it a little bit to, I think you called it the, the German way uh, of learning to fly. If you kind of want to elaborate on this a little bit, because I found that a very, very entertaining, but also very accurate description of, of why this might be a naive view that you can just go 100% into renewables. So um, 
the renewables that are dependent on the weather for producing are on their own schedule. They're not, shall we say, weight-bearing, and, and occasionally they all go away, so you have the entire weight of the economy at that moment relying on just the remaining pillars of support of the grid, just the remaining power plants. So this joke I think that you're alluding to, I'm saying it, if you're 50% renewables now, that's a bit like saying I've lifted one of my feet off the ground and that I'm going to learn to fly on schedule because that's 50% of the job done. All I have to do is lift my other foot off the ground. Say, for example, one toe at a time. Well, lifting one toe of, at a time does not make the total weight bearing importance of your foot go down. It just concentrates the responsibility on a shrinking pad on the bottom of your feet, perhaps all the way with sufficient training in a lifetime of ballerina training onto one single pointy toe. Again, the weight isn't reduced. The pressure is increased. So saying you're going to fly by taking one foot off the ground and then finally taking the other foot off the ground is what I is the image that comes to mind when I hear people say they chart the progress towards displacing the volume of energy while still relying 90% or higher on just the fossil fuels or the remaining nuclear plants in, or, and just a little bit of hydro in the remaining hours where there's not good production. Without that hour of all the way being on point, then the grid yeah. would not function. It would, the heartbeat could stop. So you need to make sure that it doesn't. So you do what Germany does and you keep the same amount of fossil fuel generating capacity now as before they started the build out of renewables in the energy window. I mean, there, there has been an ongoing debate that I, I wonder if you have a take on this, because I'm not sure if it's a fringe debate or one that starts to gradually penetrate into the center of this. That and I'm just quoting what some pe some people again some who comment on on matters of of energy and matters of the that there is an idea that base load apparently no longer matters right that the base load is a concept of the past and and, and nobody should care anymore about the base load argument do you think that's a a straw man or do do you think there is there is some validity to this or, or maybe you could just very quickly explain because this another term I think that many people don't really know what is base load and why. Can we get, or why will it be less relevant, or why won't it be less relevant in the in the future? This just came to me with your example about standing on on one foot or on one toe, because I guess that would be the kind of base load then provided by coal or by, by fossil fuels. So base load used correctly is supposed to describe the minimum amount of power in the lowest time or the lowest few times of demand in the whole year. In other words, base load isn't a power plant; it's us, Ralph, we are baseload. We, are, what we need, what we use is baseload. The claim is effectively that we can lower that demand on demand in that one moment to reduce a deficit of supply from renewables that abandon us. And that's one thing, that it's us at fault for wanting energy, not the energy grid at fault for failing to deliver. So that's part of it. The second part is saying, no. Wait, can, it, can I interrupt you real quick? Sure. Just so is just just for clarity. So is it then almost the, the argument that what you just said, right? Is is that kind of just uh, another way of saying it's rationing? In a sense, you say. So I was going to move on to the next part. It, it, some people claim okay, that sorry. we ought to have rationing. Some people think we ought to, but won't say it because they're smart. And then other people think absolutely not. I want an abundant world of abundant energy. We just want it from renewables. 
So I, I don't want to over concentrate on the rationing part to just say that shifting around the demand for energy is one of the fastest things to come up among experts who insist that that's going to be necessary because they aren't involved in industrial production. They aren't involved in actually starting and stopping assembly lines and rescheduling workers and rescheduling projects to fit the weather. They think if they just pay enough for you to decline the service of energy, then that will allow the service for those who can't pay or don't want to pay to decline the service. Look, some aspect of this has always been a part of managing grids. So that's the other thing. People saying that, oh, we're going to be flexible in the future. Oh, bullshit. We're flexible now. We're flexible to the extent it still makes sense economically to be on the grid for most factories. But there are places with factories starting to retreat from public aspects of the grid. And this is a terrible thing because that reduces the baseloadiness of the demand without solving the crisis of, of supply in the bad moments. You, you see this in Germany where if you look at the public supply of electricity versus the total supply of electricity, the difference is gro it's like over 10% and it's almost entirely fossil, Ralph. Why? Because companies that are making power for themselves are believing less that that power ought to or could come from the grid. I mean, this, this is the thing, right? It, when, when we look at uh, Eurocoal just recently published statistics today, and they show that the Germany is still the largest producer of coal. Kind of this, it's still coal country number one in in Europe. And you have also, interestingly enough, in the past talked quite a bit about coal. Uh, and you, I, I'm hopefully I'm not misattributing what you said, but because I found this a quite beautiful thing to say that if we want to get rid of coal. We first have to to understand what it does for us. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. A little uh, bit, I think I think the way I put it in the podcast with Chris Kiefer on decouple, and if you search yeah. for coal, you'll find me on there. Is that if you don't love coal, you'll never get rid of it. Yes, that's what that was. It exactly. Could you maybe because I think it, it would be since as it looks now for now uh, with the end again I say for now the end of nuclear power in Germany a lot of this most likely will be taken over by coal so I think we would be amiss in this podcast not to talk a little bit about coal and also you know its disadvantages but also as you mentioned right that it it has certain it has certain qualities that explain why countries like China why countries like Indonesia why countries like Pakistan are now in parts returning to coal because they find it more reliable. They find it, they kind of know it's there when, when you need it. And many of them, like Indonesia, they have coal in abundance. So maybe can we talk a little bit about what do you think is the future of coal? Sure. Because I recently, I think it's it's Ember Research. They say 2022, that was the that was peak coal. And from now, it's just, uh, it's going to be a, a slide down the hill. And in, I think CNN uh, had its... Uh, the end of fossil fuels begins in 2023. And there was no question mark behind this. So they are convinced that maybe you can kind of contribute a little bit to this. Uh, or what do you think about these very optimistic or exaggerated scenarios? Sure. So the thing about coal is that it's energy that comes with its own battery. It's, it's solar that's already been stored. You need merely dig it up. And it's free. You need merely dig it up. That's the thing that I, I'm always so confused. People are like, don't you like sun and wind? It's free. Yeah, it's free. So is coal. It's right there. You just get it. Uranium's free too. There, there it is. You just get it up. Nobody's charging. We didn't arrive on Earth with a big bill from God saying this much for your coal, this much for your natural gas, this much for your uranium. It's all free. If it seems like there's a cost for digging up coal, then that's also the cost of putting it in a battery. It is a battery. It is, it is its own self-stored, stable, dense fuel supply. Not as dense as uranium. It's about, what, 
100 million times less dense, depending on the way you calculate it. But it's uh, still pretty dense, and you can get it, move it to a move it from one place where you find it to the place where you want it, and then burn it. That's why Germany loves coal. It has these colossal mines of crappy coal, these lignite mines of so-called brown coal that's just coal that hasn't been pressurized to the right temperatures in the Earth's crust. It's, it's not been baked. It's not been finished. It's uh, unfinished coal that's sitting on the surface of Germany. They just dig up all the fertile land, throw that away, and then they dig down and just scoop it until the end, until it's deep enough, and they can't find as much of this layer of uncooked coal. And then they put it on trains, press it into nuggets, and then burn it right there. These massive power plants that are going to replace the baseload function that was being carried by nuclear to give them extra reprieve and extra economic importance, extra value. So the reason the coal industry didn't stand up for nuclear, even though there's they have similar functions, is because now that nuclear is gone, for now, in Germany, the coal plants are almost completely unassailable, politically, financially. They're just functionally irreplaceable. And that's why the coal industry is only going to speak up for itself properly now that nuclear is gone. And this is, I think the Washington Post recently did a very interesting report, and I'm pretty sure that you saw it as well, where they looked at energy production per U.S. state and which states actually managed to get or to decrease independence on coal. And apparently it turned out that the most effective ways to, to get rid of coal is either gas or nuclear. But no state actually managed to replace coal by wind and solar. Which, which I find I find quite remarkable because also going back to what you said originally, whatever one's take on these issues is, we don't really have a reliable case study. I mean, California tried it. There is now the struggle also with the last remaining nuclear power plant in the Abu Canyon. Uh, and I think, I don't know if this is true. Mark Mills men mentioned this once, that the Californians, that they, they kind of sluice off electricity from electricity that is, um, that is uh, transiting through their country, I think from Oregon to Arizona, or, or thereabouts, I don't want to want to kind of completely mix up uh, uh, my states. So, is is the alternative? So it's either coal or gas or nuclear because we don't have. I mean, as a question, or is there truly a potential alternative to this? I mean, yeah, of course, there's a the potential alternative. Realm. The one that Germany is pursuing, which is deindustrialization. Um, so to That's be it. to be less cute, make no mistake. There are definitely grids where increasing wind and solar is taking operational hours, is taking working hours from uh, coal and gas plants, and in some cases, nuclear. So in France, EDF turns down nuclear in favor of renewables, even though it's paying out massive subsidies that it has to collect from its consumers to the renewables for the pleasure of being forced to turn down its own reactors and therefore give up its own revenues to host equally decarbonized power, absolutely mad. It's how the finances are in such a wreckage for EDF. It's one of the major reasons. But looking, looking beyond that ridiculous French case, it is true that rising renewables are associated with falling fossil fuel production and from power plants. I, and I'm, I'm sorry, people are going to get mad at me. And a lot of people who love my work are often convinced that I've said that the opposite's not true. No. The function of fuel-based sources are, if anything, like the man trying to step on the last of his toes before leaving the ground and yeah. flying. The function becomes ever more difficult to replace the fewer hours you need to run the fuel-based sources.
California is having an awful time to replace even a single gas plant these days because the function of the fewer and fewer remaining power plants that use fuel is just, it's just so hard to replace. Sorry. Anyway, right, so this, okay, so this is a long have, and very beastly uh, podcast episode. We should bring it to a conclusion. Yes, yes. So I only have one last question. Where do you see technology go in the in the nuclear in the nuclear area? Right? Uh, do, do you think that the kind of technology that's already available is is good enough? Is sufficient to kind of pursue the models like the the the, the convoy model they originally applied in Germany, or do you also have high hopes uh, for newer ambitious projects like you know uh, molten salt reactors or small modular reactors or kind of what would if you would kind of design a future grid based on on nuclear power as its main energy source kind of what what model would you prefer what would you be looking at uh, a world that turns its riches and resources towards nuclear that is the countries that are say rich selling fossil fuels are likely to be the ones to get themselves off carbon by use of nuclear while selling the fossil fuels to the poor suckers who didn't get on to nuclear. I see that being an increasing trend, a feedback loop, shall we say. Middle Eastern countries that sell oil using the revenue to build nuclear, to be able to sell more oil and gas, to depress the ability of other countries that don't have that much nuclear to even do their own oil and gas production and so on. I see this happening. Um, as far as the technologies that those big countries, those big energy producing countries are choosing, they tend to choose the production ready technologies at the largest scale available today. So that is going to that means that I still do see a massive role for traditional large water, uh, lar large light water reactors, because once you build them, they are phenomenal performers over immensely long time periods. And it's not necessarily worth the risk to attempt to get cheaper construction for maybe more expensive operation or less reliable, or we don't know. The risk is you buy something that's not a guaranteed excellent performer as constructed today. It's not clear you'll get all the advantages that you wanted in building nuclear in the first place. However, some people are doing that experimenting for us. Russia is building so-called sodium cooled, liquid metal cooled fast reactors. That's just referring to the uh, way that neutrons bounce around the core. It's just different from the reactors we have here. More things are possible, like reusing old fuel for new energy and making new fuel out of uh, non-fuel elements put in. Like that's, that's quite cool. And it's maybe something that will happen in the long run, especially if there's a rise in uranium costs and a drop in availability in the long future. We're future-proof on fuel just because of those new types of reactors. But Today, it's not abundantly clear that as constructed, they will be as cheap to operate over the long run as the ones we know for a fact are cheap to operate. I see people considering designs that work well now, but haven't spread as widely. So for example, heavy water reactors from Canada, especially if you can make new fuels that boost the cost performance and lower the burden of waste. That's something interesting that I know at least one company here in Chicago is working on quite hard. And I see very small reactors being the elite absolute pinnacle of luxury premium energy, including for self-sustained little societies, kingdoms, worlds, city-states coming in the next 10, 15 years, where I don't know if we'll be able to drive down the costs permanently so that it's cheap energy for poor places, but it will be absolutely superb 
energy for rich places first, and that is the small or the micro modular reactors. I see those being the best a man can get if you've, you're a billionaire and you need the absolute best. And if it's cheap enough power, then it may actually drive economic activity that makes it available as an option to poorer nations, poorer oligarchs, and poorer islands, shall we say. All right, Mark Nelson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I hope we can do this again in the future because I'm sure that the question of energy, energy uh, has by far not ended to draw a lot of attention. Indeed, I would say that in Germany, it's not, it's not the end or even the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. We will fight back. Thank you very much.